0: This will be an introduction sermon on many other sermons that, God willing, that we're going to be looking at. Um, we're looking at the new birth from the Scriptures. It's, it's huge. Regeneration. Uh, MacArthur said this. He said, next to the, God, the doctrine of election, which is an eternity, God, which God decreed, This is no doubt the greatest miracle there is in this life. And what is surprising to so many people, and you have in evangelical circles so many books that are written on how to be born again. How can I be born again? It's a good question. And and actually, I don't know why so many people have written so many books because. It, the answer is very simple. You and I contribute nothing to being born again. We cannot make this happen. It is something God does. And Jesus gives the analogy of birth. A first birth in which we had nothing to do with and a second birth in which we have nothing to do with. Now conversion's different. Conversion is believing. Conversion is faith. It's a gift that God gives. in conversion. And repentance. Repentance and faith are like twin sisters. They go hand in glove. They're like one coin, two sides of the coin. You can't separate them. But election, there's a lot of people who have a hard time with that because they have no control of it. Absolutely. It is the sovereign work of God. It is what God decreed. And the same with regeneration. It is a sovereign work of God. And aren't you glad? If we had something to do with our salvation, we'd mess it up. If we had something to do with our salvation, we would lose it. But not God. When God has something to do with it, in which He does, He has everything to do with it. From beginning to end. It's perfect. Now, we're not perfect, but, he, but once we are born again, that sanctification comes in process of obeying the Lord and being sanctified by God through the Word and through prayer and so forth. We desire the things that God loves and God desires. So, we've got more to say about that. So, we're looking at the new birth. And Jesus, in this breaking ground, we're looking at, and there may be another sermon on this, because I don't believe I can get everything packed in on this, but we're looking at Jesus teaches Nicodemus. Jesus teaches Nicodemus. So please bow with me for a um, moment in prayer as we seek the Lord's face within this hour of worship as we open the Word of God and break the bread of life. Uh, As I speak to you, and as you receive the Word, and that the Spirit of God would help us to have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying, what the Word of God is saying, and that He would open our eyes and open our hearts, and that we would be so focused and engaged in what we're about to hear because it's so critical. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do praise You. Lord, we adore You. Lord, we thank You for the great salvation that has come to us through Your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, Your begotten Son. And Lord, my, our prayer today is that, Lord, You would speak to us through Your Word, in which You have. We pray, Lord, You'd bless it, but Lord, You've already blessed it. But we need Your Spirit to, to bless it to our hearts and we as we look to you and we look unto Jesus, the Author and Finisher of our faith, Lord. I also pray that, speaking of the third person of the Trinity, Lord, would pray that Your Blessed Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, the True Teacher, will bring many sons to glory in this day. Just not only in this little gathering, but Lord, across this world, where even where Your people are being persecuted. Comfort them, Lord, in that persecution. That they would endure it. Lord, we praise You. We thank You for the blessing that You have given us. We thank You for the much truth, Lord, and help us to be sober and vigilant in this because much, the more truth that's given, the more accountable we are going to be. Lord, we thank You that... Within ourselves, we cannot believe the gospel. It's only by grace through faith. We thank you, Father, for the blessed spirit. We thank you for the new birth that only you can give. And we praise you. We thank you that salvation is 100% of you. Lord, bless your word. May we have ears to hear what the spirit says to the church for your honor and glory. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In his Bible exposition commentary I was reading, uh, Warren Wearsby had really a great uh, quote, opening words of uh, the studying of this great chapter, uh, John chapter 3. Quote, he says this, not only was Benjamin Franklin, speaking of Benjamin Franklin, we all know who he is, right? A great statesman and an inventor, but he was also a great correspondent and received letters from famous people from people from all over the world. One day he received what could be well have been the most important letter he ever came to that came to his desk. It was from the well-known British preacher George Whitfield, the great evangelist and the new uh, awakening, great awakening. Quote, he says this, Whitfield says this, I find that you grow more, speaking to Ben Franklin, that you grow more and more famous in the learned world, as he wrote. And he also goes on to say, as you have made such progress in investigating the, the mysteries of electricity, Whitfield said this, I now humbly urge you to be give diligent heed to the mystery of the new birth. He said it's the most important, interesting study, and when you mastered it, it will richly repay you for your pains, end quote. There's also a, another... Uh, Conversation that somebody came up, a little lady came to Whitfield one day as he, he heard, she heard uh, Whitfield preach the great evangelist out on the, the fields, and he preached on born being born again so much, almost in every sermon he preached it, repentance, being born again, and he said and she said this and she asked a question why do you preach you must be born again all the time? And he looked at her and he said, you must be born again. That's the reason why. That's how critical it is. This is absolutely important. It is a chapter that is full of great truth. And the new birth regeneration is no doubt one of the most important doctrines of the faith found within the pages of Holy Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, out of the 66 books of the Bible, and of all the theology that this little Bible has, of these great 66 books, which are inspired of God, all Scripture is important. And all Scripture is given by inspiration in God. And God, buried, no doubt about it, all of it is, 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 is important. We do not, someone came to R.C. Sproul says, what's your favorite Scripture in, in the Bible? And he said, all of it. I have to amen to that. But, let me say this, but when it comes to believing in God and through the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, no doubt in John chapter 3 of the Gospel here, the new birth is no doubt a key topic. I would say it ranks in the top three of all the great scriptures and doctrines in the Bible. It is so important that without it, you and I will never see or enter into the kingdom of God. That's how important it is. It's important that I preach it with clarity, from the words of God, and it's also important that we are engaged and we are understanding what is being said, because it's absolutely critical from the... When a believer dies, if, it, if you are a believer, you and I, that, as Spurgeon said, that would be your greatest moment. And we better know that we are right with God. You better know that you and, I and myself are born again of the Spirit of God. It's absolutely critical. So what I'm preaching today, we need to be engaged and... uh The next several Lord's Days, I'm going to make a series out of this on the new birth. It is so important. So pray for me as I bring this message to you. And uh, that God, the Holy Spirit, will be the true teacher through the Word of God as we look into the Word of God. Now, let me say this. In addition, in this great chapter, we see Jesus in three different roles. We're going to be coming up to this. The first, we see Him as a teacher. He is a teacher from God to teach men. And he is a great teacher. We see this in verses 1 through 21 in this section in which we're about to embark on. This is groundbreaking. The second thing we see Jesus as is the bridegroom. First he's the teacher, now we see see him as the bridegroom in verses 22 through 30. And then third we will see him... In this chapter, we will see him as the witness in verses 31 through 36. So we see him as the teacher, the bridegroom, and the witness. And all in this chapter. All in John chapter 3. Isn't it great? This is a, such a great chapter, isn't it? Wonderful verses. Actually, our, one of the most familiar verses will be coming up as John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There it is. If you want to not perish, we must believe in him. Now we must know what it means to believe. As we already looked from the verses as we have looked at, that uh, there was many that believed in his name when they saw the signs, which he did in John 2 verse 23. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. He's the the discerner of all hearts. And then it says, and he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He knows the hearts of men. And again, let's keep this in mind. As we come to John chapter 3, Jesus knows exactly what is in the heart of Nicodemus. He knows this man's heart, just like he knows your heart and my heart. He knows our thoughts. He's omniscient. But here he is, Jesus in the flesh. And this is a very interesting conversation as this old sage, this religious sage, comes to Jesus by night. Now, as I mentioned in John chapter 2, verse 23 and 25 through 25, this is very critical because there's a connection there. As has come to Jerusalem for the Passover, Jesus has won the undying hatred of the Sadducees, which the Sadducees is a party of the priests who controlled the temple in those days. As we know, we read that Jesus drove the merchants out of the temple because they polluted the temple, and Jesus publicly denounced the way of the Sadducees and how they were treating God in the Lord's house. They turned it into a place of merchandise. And it should have been a place of prayer. And by the way, again, the Sadducees would be like the liberal theologians of our day. That's the Sadducees. But there's another party that's part of the Sanhedrin as well. This Jewish, this, The Jewish leaders were the Pharisees. They were considered more the conservative theologians as we would have in our day. So, the liberal theologians and conservative theologians is nothing new under the sun. They have in that day as well. The Pharisees were very strict. Strict to the law of Judaism. And actually, they were so strict to it, they added so many other laws to it, it was absolutely ridiculous. They thought it was just ascend to God to even on the Sabbath to pull a, look into a mirror and to pull a gray hair. It was just absolutely, that's one example of how ridiculous they added to the law of God that they were so fearful of breaking the law and they added to it. They probably started well. We don't know exactly how they start. We do know that they started somewhere in inter- testament period of those 400 years of silence somewhere the Pharisees came up and they were actually considered like the original Puritans but they went corrupt because how did they go corrupt they they got away from the word of God they, they drew away from it they came away from it and that's what that's when problems happen well these Pharisees were um, very strict to holding up the Law. Well, the the, the the Sadducees may have been applauding what I would consider this jab at men whom the Pharisees think are obsessed with power and temple rites at the expense of other commandments. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were at odds against each other, like the liberal theologians are at odds against the conservative theologians today. But this isn't entirely surprising, is it, that a Pharisee would come to see if this firebrand Nazarite named Jesus, that his views would line up with his own. Can I say this? As we would see, this learned religious leader of the Jews is in for a big surprise. He's in for a big surprise. John chapter 3, let me read it to you. i like to read the first 10 verses of the text and then we will begin to work our way through to verse 3 today. And like I said, this is only breaking ground as we embark on this because there's so much here within our text. Let me read um, John chapter 3 verses 1 to 10, beginning at verse 1. Verse 1. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you a teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who has came down from heaven That is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. I'll stop right there when a few verses extra, but that's a bonus for us. There's much here, right? There's much here. And it's so important. Let's look at verse 1. Verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. That's what the Scripture says. I like what MacArthur says. Here we have a worrying sinner. We have a worrying sinner. He's worried, isn't he? He's concerned, and he's got a, a right to be concerned. This verse actually introduces us to this man, this Pharisee, by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus meant in the Greek, victor. Comes from the Greek word Nike, which was means victor. Scripture tells us that he's a ruler of the Jews. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin body basically I've already mentioned a little bit about it, but it actually consisted of seventy elders within that religious group, very, very strict to the code. Of, of of the law, uh, that body actually controlled Jewish matters in Jerusalem, and also had great moral authority elsewhere in the Palestine and even outside of Palestine. The Sanhedrin included again both Sadducees and the Pharisees, and as we will see. And as you read Scripture and you know the Word of God, this is the group that literally crucified our Lord. As as a leading Pharisee, Nicodemus was a very spiritual, quote-unquote spiritual, social leader. He was a prominent man. He was wealthy. As a Pharisee, he was trained to believe that by obeying each Technicality of the law of God, he was somehow attaining God's approval by his good works and a place in what the Jews called the world of uh, the world or the age to come. That would be the kingdom of God, and that's why Jesus knows everything about him and he knew his heart. But. Uh, That's the reason why he's worried. That's the reason why he's full of anxiety. He's got a reason to worry. And that's the reason why he's so fearful. And you have a lot of people that's in the same group here. They're doing everything that they can to somehow earn their way to heaven within their own good works as they labor and labor and labor somehow to earn their salvation. You, You wonder why the cults or going door to door and out there, uh, as I go in Cartersville, and you see this, just not in Cartersville, on the street as a, as a milkman, I'm driving my milk truck, and I see right on the corners of the streets, every time I go through there, on the corner, the Jehovah Witnesses has their stand out there giving people their watchtower and promoting people. They're constantly evangelizing, and they're promoting their false teaching, that includes everything that there's faults about the kingdom of God. They're, because they're so far away from what the word of God says about it. They twist the scriptures. And you know that they twist the scriptures about who Jesus is. That's the most important. That's just one cult. And any wonder that they're out there doing so much of this. Because somehow they think they're earning their way to heaven. The more that they can do. The more that they can earn their way to heaven. And stack it up. Thinking that this is going to please God. Not so. Did they, would they would ever think that what God sees is a stench before him. And that's exactly what the word of God says. And we will see this in this text. All Nicodemus sees before him is a judgment to come. Condemnation. And that's why he's worried. Rightly so. Rightly so. Well, that's a little introduction to Nicodemus. We got more to say to him later on, but uh, let me let's move on. Look at verse two. This man came to Jesus by night. Let's stop right there. <laughs> there are so many books been written on this. Why did Jesus come? I'm sorry. Why did Nicodemus come to Jesus by night? Well, we don't know. Actually, know that why Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Perhaps he came to the Lord for instruction to keep from being embarrassed publicly in the daylight uh, so that he might return to the Jews with additional learning? We don't know. We can, we can guess all we like to, but we actually don't know. Really the main point of the story is of the, that this religious man did come to Jesus. Isn't that what's important? Whether it's by day or by night, he came to Jesus. That's what's important. In a sense, he was a seeker of the truth. Kind of like our philosophers today. There's truth seekers. You see this all the time. I said, there's a motorcycle gang out there. I've, I've seen them. They've been around for quite some time, ever since I was a kid. And they ride these Harleys around. And I notice in the back of their leather jacket, it says, freedom seekers. Freedom seekers. How many people out there seeking for freedom or seeking the truth? But all the truth is right here in these wonderful pages of Scripture. All in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. Well, out of 6,000 Pharisees in that day, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, here's Nicodemus, the only Pharisee that actually approached Jesus in that time. Outside of Nicodemus, I would say, the the only other Pharisee that can encounter Jesus, as I know of, according to the scriptures, found, we see him in the book of Acts, and he's by the name of, first of all, the Saul of Tarsus. He was a persecutor of the church, and as you well know, if you know the word of God, he gave us, later on, after his conversion, 13, about 13 epistles in the New Testament. Interested that Nicodemus being a Pharisee comes to Jesus and Jesus goes after Paul, Saul, in the book of Acts. Both were converted. But the Apostle Paul had a much higher calling upon him. A chosen vessel. Paul was, as you well know, let me speak a little bit about Paul here, after his conversion, he's knocked down from his horse on the road to Damascus. He's blinded for three days, and then he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and the scales come off his eyes, and he is wide open. Wide open as a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Paul's account on being a Pharisee describes in detail what a Pharisee is. Go with me to Philippians chapter 3 real quickly. This is very enlightening because outside, right along with Nicodemus, this kind of tells us a little bit about what, how a Pharisee, what their duty was and who they are. If you go to Philippians chapter 3, look at, uh, with me to verse 4 to verse 6. Paul says this, though I also might have uh, confidence in the flesh, in which he does it, but he's basically bringing this. If you look at the following, uh, the, I'm sorry, the verse before, for we are the circumcision, and he's talking about who worship God in spirit, in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh whatsoever. So he says, and then he says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, he's getting ready to just tell us about all this he used to be in his B.C. days. He was very religious, folks, like Nicodemus. He says this, If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. He's actually using sarcasm here. And then he says this, Circumcised of the eighth day, the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Then he says in verse 7, let me read this a little bit here because it tells us there's a transition, but that's the hinge, folks. That's the hinge that gives us the revelation. But what things were gained to me, these I've counted lost for Christ. And notice what he says. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish as a manure heap, a dung the old King James says that I may gain Christ and then he says and be found in Him and notice what he says this is the gospel right here folks not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. There you have law and you have gospel. The gospel, as I mentioned last Lord's Day, the law says, be righteous. And the verdict is, basically, you're not righteous. And then the gospel says that righteousness is provided in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And then in his pursuit for God, after salvation, is sanctification in verse 10, that I may know him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. But you get the point. He was once one of the most religious men that ever lived, right along with Nicodemus. A Pharisee was a very studious, very studious and strict to the law. But the law cannot save them. The law only adds to their condemnation. Now, again, as we look at uh, Nicodemus, it's very important. That he's a strict Pharisee, which is meant that he lived by the strictest of religious rules. I want you to think of this. Well, such a heavy burden. Such a heavy burden. That's why Jesus said, if you look in Matthew, at the end of chapter 11, I believe. Jesus says to the people, come unto me. All you heavy burden, heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You know what he's talking about? And then he says, "Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden's light." You know what he's telling people in that day? Rather than being yoked up with the law, which brings condemnation, he says, "You take my yoke. My yoke is light, My burden's light, my yoke is easy. Isn't that wonderful? And Jesus is the only person. And the flesh, folks, that fulfilled and kept the law perfectly. Perfectly. No one else did it. So, as Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, he's coming to the one that kept the law perfectly. He's coming to the right source. He's coming to the right man. Religious rules stacked on Pop of another on Nicodemus the burden becomes heavy but Jesus knew his heart and Jesus knew that he wasn't going to put out a smoking flax here he, 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 he was going to work with Nicodemus and he was going to give him the truth he was going to teach him many rules that was added on so that they tried to please God these Pharisees so many Pharisees were hypocrites, hypocrites, play actors because they could not keep the law. I believe there's a scripture in Psalm 119 that says, it speaks about the way of perfection that I cannot keep, but thy law is higher than that. That's paraphrased. And the law is so high. The standard is so high no one can keep it. Only Jesus kept it. Now, go with me to Matthew chapter 23. Let's look a little bit how the Pharisees looked like uh, before God. And I want you to keep this in mind. You notice that in the Gospels that Jesus is scolding and scathing and blistering uh, people in that day who He preached very hard against. Did you notice who He preaches hard? Very hard! against are the self-righteous Pharisees. The sinners, he offers an invitation to come to him graciously and we will see later on, God willing, in chapter 4, the, the mixed breed prostitute, the Samaritan. It was basically mixed and they were looked down at. There were Samaritans and the Jews looked down at him. and here this prostitute comes to Jacob's well and Jesus just basically begins to evangelize her and says, Give me a drink of water. And he graciously gives her the gospel. But Nicodemus, he is he evangelizes Nicodemus in a totally different way. Completely different way. And that tells us something about evangelism, doesn't it? We need to be aware of our audience and, and how to present the gospel. We always present the gospel, the law and the gospel but we must do it in a, in a somewhat a, a way of wisdom in the way Jesus did because he knew the person. Of course, we don't know the hearts of men, do we? Like Jesus does. But we need to pray and ask God, give us wisdom and how we should talk to this person and this person about the Lord Jesus Christ. You can even start off by a simple, a simple question. Give me a drink of water or a comment. You can always take them to the gospel, right? Notice in chapter 23, this is kind of a long, I don't know if I, I should read this whole chapter, but maybe I should very quickly go through it. Jesus gives the woes to the scribes and Pharisees, and actually, as you well know, a prophet would give a blessing or a woe, a curse, a blessing or a curse. And Jesus, as the great prophet, greater than the prophet, of course, he's God in the flesh but he speaks as a prophet. And notice what he says to the Pharisees. And then then Jesus spoke to the multitudes in Matthew 23, to the multitudes and to his disciples. And then he says, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. And he knows these people are listening, even though he's speaking to the multitudes and his disciples, he knows that these people, he's given warning and listen what he says. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. In other words, they're full of pride. They want to be seen Amen. They want to sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say, and do not do. That's a hypocrite for you. Do as I say, and don't do as I do. That's a hypocrite. Verse 4, For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay on them and laid them on men's shoulders. But they themselves would not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. There's their motive. They, they, all their works they do is to be seen of men. Not of God. He says this. They make their phylacteries broad. And enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at the feast. And the best seats in the synagogues. See a lot of that? And they're sad to say in the evangelical churches. Greetings in the marketplaces and be called to men. Rabbi, Rabbi, I'm important. Hmm. I'm the pastor. I'm the evangelist. I'm the man of God. Get the point? But you do not be called Rabbi. For one is your teacher. The Christ. And you are all Brethren. Do not call anyone on earth Father. Oh, wow. The Roman Catholics need to take this scripture into heart. For one is your Father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Notice how Jesus gives it to them. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For neither you go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are in, entered to go in. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. For you devour the widow's houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive a greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You, for you travel land and sea to win pro, one proselyte, and when, you, and when He's one, you make Him twice as much a son as yourselves. That's strong words. Woe to you, blind gods, who say, whoever swears by the temple is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is the greater, the gold of the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar... It is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater the gift the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. He who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe and mint and niece and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone, blind gods who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of exortion extortion, and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inwardly full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adore the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves and that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers... How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Wow. I don't think there's <coughs> I don't think there's any stronger words from our Lord found in any of the Gospels than what we just read. Powerful, isn't it? Some of those verses hit me. I said, wow, I got a little Pharisee in me. I need to have that, that Pharisee crucified. I don't know. It's the, Basically, the Pharisee is just leaning all on the flesh, folks. And that's what he's doing. He, he's religious outwardly. Everything he does is about looks and to be seen a man. His motives are wrong. He prays for the wrong reason. He gives tithes for the wrong reason. He, he, everything he does in a religious sense, he does wrongly. But Jesus, the discerner of the hearts, knows exactly what's in the heart. And by the way, keep that in mind. The reason I read that is because He knows what's in the heart of Nicodemus. And He gives Nicodemus exactly what He needs to deliver Him from such a religious system and a religious machine. Wow! Nicodemus was deeply concerned in his quest for the truth right he comes to Jesus by night again as we don't know the very reason it could be because to spare his embarrassment that's a guess some suggest Nicodemus wanted to a quite uninterrupted conversation within uh, with the new teacher come from God maybe he wanted some more time with Jesus that's a possibility like I said we can just kind of just fill in the gaps there and guess at it but we don't know exactly his Real reason. But I tell you this, folks. Jesus knew His reason. Jesus knew His motive. Jesus knew Him just like He knows you and me. Isn't that wonderful? The one that loves us the most knows exactly what we need. He tells us the truth. The one that tells us the hardest truth loves us the most. We need to keep that before us. Jesus is a teacher come from God. Verse 2, there's a small plural pronoun word that throws a great deal of light in this conversation. Notice what Jesus Nicodemus says to Jesus. Rabbi, we, we, we know that you are a teacher come from God. The we indicates that Nicodemus was representing the relig- religious leaders as well. Nicodemus uses the word rabbi. Interesting. Basically means teacher, and uh, you notice Jesus already mentioned about that in Matthew 23. You not to be called that, because they liked the prominence. They, they, that, that was their, about their pride. It was a title. It was just to be prominent, a preeminence, like others in the church at the time of the apostles. Theotrophies comes to mind. Jesus knows the hearts. He knew Nicodemus's heart. Well, Jesus is very familiar with the term teacher. He acknowledges uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as teacher or rabbi come from God. Well, he gives respect. That's interesting, isn't it? You're a teacher from God. You do these signs and these wonders. And he says it. No one could do these signs or miracles that you do unless God is with them. Jesus could have took that flattery, but Jesus didn't take the flattery, folks. Interested in spite of all his learning, Nicodemus did not recognize the Lord Jesus Christ as God manifest in the flesh, did he? No. Scripture says God, Jesus is God in the flesh because we looked at John 1, through 1-5. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. The Word was with God. The Word, Logos, was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the light was the light of men, and the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And basically, now we're come to verse 3 here. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Nicodemus doesn't get it. Jesus is the light, and he shines on the darkness of men. And now, in verse 3, it's very critical. May God help us to truly engage our souls on this verse, folks. From our Lord Jesus Christ Himself who came from heaven to teach us about the new birth and give this revelation. Now keep in mind, this truth is, in essence, Nicodemus was asking, in a sense, who are you? That's basically what, in a sense, it's interesting because if you notice in John, in the text, in John 3, here, and we come to this, it says, Jesus answered him. And it's interesting that Jesus answered. There's no question. It makes you wonder, why did, they, why did the translators put answered? But you know what I think about that? It's almost like Nicodemus had a question in his heart. About who Jesus really was. Jesus answered. It's almost like Jesus is reading this religious man's heart. Who are you? Isn't that the most important question? Who is Jesus? And how we answer that is critical. The miracles you show is from God. Nicodemus says, You do all these miracles, you must be the Messiah. The anointed one, the deliverer, to come redeem us. The Jewish people from the tyranny of the Romans. Who are you truthfully? Who are you honestly? I think Nicodemus had this in his heart. And then the text says, Jesus answered. It's almost like in the hearts of many, many people that even come to church. Who is Jesus? Jesus. And Jesus says this, folks, and here it is. Here's the truth. Most assuredly. In other words, the old King James says, Verily, verily. Truly, truly. Amen, amen. You will see this 25 times in this gospel. And when Jesus says that, He's making a declaration of truth at the beginning. It's basically, we say amen after a truth is said, right? Amen. That's the truth. All the promises of God are yes and amen. But Jesus puts His amen at the beginning of the statement because He is the truth. And and Jesus says, amen, amen. Hear this truth. Truly, truly. In other words, He is about to give a revelation and you know what else He's doing when He says that? He is correcting a false statement. He is going to correct Nicodemus in the false statement in which he believes. You get that? And then Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You notice what Jesus does? He goes directly to his heart. He's not going around from his mind to he goes right to his heart. You notice that the way the word of God is is such a discerner of hearts, it pierces. To the core of your being it reads you you know we come to read the Word of God but it turns brother Keith mentions this a great deal but it turns around and it reads you rightly so and actually Jesus does not give in to Nicodemus's flattery as I said and him doing miracles Jesus saw the Nicodem- uh, saw what was in Nicodemus's empty searching heart and Jesus read his heart He discerns his heart and then he cuts it lovingly and he gives him what he needs, not what he wants. Isn't that wonderful about our Lord? He loves us that much even though he wounds us and it cuts and it's hard. But on the other end, folks, it has great benefits. It is the thing that people push away but it's the one thing that will heal their soul more than anything else and that is the truth. And Jesus said that. He said, you shall come to know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Isn't it wonderful? Have such a wonderful God. You must be born again. What does that mean? You must be born from above. Miracles, signs, wonders were not... What was the most important thing there? What was the most important was the great miracle of regeneration. Isn't that interesting that Nicodemus is focusing on all those miracles that he did? And the Bible says... That he did so many miracles that even the books, all the books could not contain what he did. And many miracles he did were not written in Jerusalem when he cleansed the temple. That was a miracle, but there was many other miracles he did. And the miracle of regeneration, Jesus goes basically says, this is the miracle that you need. This is the miracle that's most important. But basically that's what he's saying. Regeneration. You must be born again. What does that mean? You must be born from above. That's the Greek. You must be born from above. You must be changed. You must be changed from the within to the out. Like Jesus says, cleanse what is in the platter first, inside the heart. You don't do it the opposite way. It's not reformation Then on the outside, then inside. It's inside and out. That's the proper way. You must be changed spiritually. You must be changed from within. You must be changed wholly. You must be changed, changed, changed. Completely. The new birth is a necessity. It is an imperative. In other words, to see and to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. J.C. Rowell said this, if you are not born again, you will wish one day that you were not born at all. Wow. Because the only way we can enter into the kingdom of God is we must be born again. Now, I want to tell you, again, when Jesus says you must be born again, He says it many times in this chapter. We're not talking about the words of Spurgeon or the, the words of Luther. The words of R.C. Sproul or Pastor MacArthur as much as I love those godly men and they're some of my favorites and I read them all the time. But folks, we're looking at the Lord of the church here. Jesus Christ Himself said this. So we must come with full attention, engaged, 100%. Jesus, when Jesus says you must be born again, we must be born again. Whitfield's right. But more than that, Jesus is the one that's right on it. Jesus said you must be born again, born from above. That's a necessity. It's something that God does fully, completely, and not something man does. After all, Nicodemus has tried it all. He's tried everything religious. Now he's empty. He knows he cannot go any further. And then he comes to Jesus by night and Jesus is basically saying, start over and dump all your religion. Could you imagine telling somebody that's going to church for 90 years and saying and, and, and they still have not been born again of the Spirit of God they haven't shown no evidence and all that they've done from their infant, from their childhood to their old age, they've played church and then Jesus comes and says, "You must be born again, dump all your religion, start over and enter into the kingdom of God." It's basically what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Wow. Born from above, and otherwise you can never enter in or see the kingdom of God unless this happens. It must happen. It's a must. It's a necessity. And we better pay attention to this because if we're not born again of the Spirit of God, we will never see or enter into God's kingdom. Heaven. Because it's wholly supernatural. Now, is Jesus telling us something that we can't do? Well, yes, He is in a sense. It's something that God does. Jesus gave these all important words. But He's also given an analogy about birth, folks. Your first birth is necessary for physical life, right? So is your second birth as a necessity for divine life. We, you, you and I had nothing to do with our first birth, right? We didn't make that happen. Same with your second birth. We have nothing to do with that. Well, why all the books about how to be born again? It's spurious and it's wrong. No one can actually tell you how to be born again. And Jesus gives the answer. We're going to go in that direction. That's why Jesus says in verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You know, the wind blows. You can't see the wind, right? But there are effects that we can see. That's what Jesus is basically telling Nicodemus. When one is born of the Spirit of God, there are effects. Now, if we do not have anything to do with our new birth, our salvation and regeneration, how can I be born again then? Well, that's really an important question, isn't it? That's a good question because everything, I mean everything here, is heaven or hell, eternal life or eternal damnation hangs on the hinges of that given the right answer. Now, I'm going to give you the right answer. This, is, uh, this will be in the application. If you go to the, um, the chapter... Uh, Chapter 1. I want you to see this. We looked at it, and it basically gives us the answer in chapter 1. Look at verse 11. He came into His own, and His own did not receive Him. But what does verse 12 say? But, there's the hinge, there's the revelation. But, as many as received Him to them He gave the right or the privilege to become children of God to those who believe in His name, who were born, there it is, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now, the Scripture says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast in it. It's all of God, and God alone. But, There is a receiving here. And that's what the text is saying. Scripture also says that, speaking of Mary, she shall bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Jehovah saves. That's what it means. That he will save his people from their sins. His people. Those that God has decreed to believe before the world was ever created. Now does that mean we throw out the whosoever will? God forbid not. Wherever the whosoever is, we preach to whosoever. But only God knows those are, that are elect, right? We don't. That's why we preach to whosoever. The general call to all people, the invitation is to all. But God knows those who is, will believe. And that's more than just foreknowledge, that is eternally decreed and eternity past in the doctrine of election. Like I said, the doctrine of election is the only great doctrine, grace, that's greater than regeneration. But I like what MacArthur said about this. In order to get to heaven and enter into the kingdom of God, you do not have to believe in the doctrine of election. Even though when you are saved, you do believe in it. But what's important is to get into heaven and get into the kingdom of God, you must believe in regeneration. You must And the scripture tells us right there, for as many as received him. To many as received him. There's three things I'd like to go to in closing here. Number one, not of blood. Not of blood. This means that a person does not become a believer through having Christian parents. Salvation is not passed down by parents to a child through bloodstream. There's a lot of people I know that hang on to the relatives of they're godly parents, children. They hang on their hope, coattail to try to get into heaven. Oh, my dad, my parents, and they're great godly men and that must mean I'm good. There's nothing in that blue. The Pharisees believed that. They said, are we not Abraham's seed? Jesus didn't care about that. They, he knew that they must be born again. It's not in the bloodstream. Second, nor the will of the flesh. Nor the will of the flesh. Listen to that. In other words, a person does not have the power, the ability in his own flesh to produce the new birth. We cannot make that happen. The Holy Spirit must make it happen. That's how critical it is. Although he must be willing in order to be saved, but it's God that makes the person willing. People say, yeah, what about my choice? Jesus says, have I not chosen you? You have not chosen me but I chose you. Jesus is the one. We first come to God and we think, oh, I'm the seeker. No, no. God's the seeker. He was there first. The only reason we seek God is because God first sought us. Don't you love but God? Does even this through His grace yet in order to be saved through His mercy and His grace, the Holy Spirit does the work of regeneration. God does that. We're going to look at that later on. Third, not the will of man. Not the will of man. In other words, man cannot save nothing. He can't even save a flea. Only God through Jesus Christ saves to the uttermost. So how does the new birth take place? The answer is very simple. The last, very last three words of verse 13. But of God. But of God. But of God. You know what that means? We're well, about ready to go to the G3. And the whole theme is the sovereignty of God. Salvation. Regeneration. It's God's work from beginning to the end. That's why the Bible says Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. So we fix our eyes on Him. And this is why Jesus said this. Nicodemus later on, you will see this again later on, we will see in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. One person came to Spurgeon one time and says, how can I know that I'm elect? Jesus says, let's go to Jesus. Go to Jesus and you'll find out. And see if you're elect. And Jesus said that no one can come to the Father Except through me, unless the Father draws him, and Jesus says, He that comes to me, I will no wise cast out. Notice that the responsibility of God's sovereignty, and then the responsibility of man. We do not both are on the same track. We don't understand it, but they run parallel. If one is born again, first second Corinthians five seventeen, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, old things have been passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What does that mean? That basically means after a person is regenerate, old value systems, priorities, the beliefs, the loves, the plans are gone. Evil and sin are still present. The dead man still is hanging on our back. That's what Romans 7 is about. The the dead man stinks. And he's going to stink until the day we go into glory. But I'm telling you, we're to put that, that... Sin and that evil dead man to death that plagues us. God's perspective. Once again, J.C. Ryle says this. What's the effects of being born again? Listen to this. To be born again, as it were, to enter upon a new existence, to have a new mind, to have a new heart, to have new views, new principles, new taste, new affections, new likings, new dislikings, new fears, new joys, new sorrows, new love to things once hated, new hatred to things once loved, new thoughts of God and ourselves and the world and the life to come and salvation. End quote. He packed it in, didn't he? In other words, when the scripture says, old things have passed away, behold, all things become new. That's what it means to be born from above, folks. And this is what happens in in regeneration. It is a supernatural act and and we can go and tell people this has happened to me in an experience by faith and it's something God has done and it's not something we cannot attribute anything in our salvation that we have done, right? I like what Paul Washer says. Not even 99.9% of God and 0.1% of us No, it's all 100% of God. Amen? There's much more to say, but I must close this out. Let me give you a question. What's important is, what's important is, have you been born again? Have you been born again? Have you experienced this new birth? Are you changed from inside and out? What about the effects? Can someone... I like what old Dr. J. Vernon McGee said. He said this years ago. I heard him through the Bible. He said, if you were to stand before a court and a jury of people and the judge were to ask you can, can they find enough evidence on you that you are a true child of God? That you are a believer in Jesus Christ? A disciple of Jesus Christ? Can they find enough evidence on you that you are a child of God? Jesus said it. We know, we know people by their fruits, and that includes us. Just not the false teachers. Yeah, the false teachers we can see discern. But what about us? David says, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Have you been born again? Have you been born again? That's what's important. I pray so. Go to Jesus and see. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what's such a great revelation that You've given us Your Word is so powerful. The truly, truly. The amen, amen. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Oh my. How important this is for all of us. It stops stops us in our tracks and playing church, being religious. And it brings us right into a relationship of reconciliation with You, Lord, through Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This great salvation... That is in your one and only Son in whom you loved who is the Lamb of God your Lamb upon a cross. And Father we know that being born of the Spirit of God is all by your grace alone. Nothing else. For your glory alone. And you have supplied the necessity, the necessary condition to come to Jesus. We thank you for this. How gracious you are. By grace, By grace alone. Lord, the only thing that comes to my mind here, the only thing that we have contributed to our salvation is our sin. The only thing that we have contributed to salvation is our sin that made it possible. And the Lord Jesus Christ paid the ransom in full. Father, we cannot thank You enough. All in the person and works of Jesus. Jesus. The power of God unto salvation. Your power, your mercy, your compassion, your right hand, your tender loving compassion. Given us the Lord Jesus Christ your Son at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and all the burdens of my soul rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight and Lord now I'm happy all the day. We thank you that there is a salvation. And we thank you for the Savior who bled and died in our place that we can have eternal life. We praise you, we thank you, and we bless your most holy name. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.